good morning, church. It's great to see you. My name is Pastor Otto, and I have to tell you, and I feel like I'm saying this a lot as of late, but it's Pastor Matt's fault. The first service was amazing, and it's our worship team's fault, too. Yeah, you guys are doing phenomenal. It was a great uh, experience being in the presence of God and hearing from God's Word, and uh, I trust that many, if not all, encountered uh, Jesus Christ during our first service, and we hope for the same uh, for you. If this is one of your first times visiting with us, we want to extend a special welcome to you. And uh, just ask if you have some time today or in the next few days to go to our website at vlchurch.com. That's vlchurch.com. Typically, we have something on the screen, but um, that's our website. And as you go to vlchurch.com, there is a new here tab that you can click on and you can fill it out. That'll come straight to me and I will communicate with you. Uh, sometime this week. But once again, welcome. I also want to make mention of the fact that our senior pastor, Pastor Matt, will be standing out at the North Portico on your way out to say hello to you um, as you uh, exit the building today. Also want to mention that um, we are going to have an annual church celebration through uh, having some worship time together next Sunday morning out outside on our VLC hillside, if I could call it a hillside. It's kind of a slant that leads up to the pavilion. And so we're really excited about that. As you know, we have a picnic every year. We won't be picnicking this year. If I could make picnic a verb, um, we won't be doing that for uh, probably obvious reasons to you, but we will be worshiping together outside and we're looking forward to that. And so we won't be inside next week. We'll be outside for one service at 1025 a.m., and we're looking forward to having that time of celebration together um, as a church. Of course, bring your own uh, lawn chair, bring your own umbrella to protect yourself from the sun, bring your own coffee. It's going to be a great time had by all. Well, thanks for continuing to give to Victory Life Church. Our church continues to thrive and God continues to bless and we're grateful unto you uh, for your generous uh, gifts uh, to our church. And if you'd like to uh, give right now, you can certainly do that by going to uh, the link that you see on the screen, vlchurch.com backslash give. And there's a Give Here tab that you can click on, or you can text to give. Text the message, VLC3833, to the number 73256, and you can follow the prompts from there. Of course, on your way out, if you'd like to give a physical check to one of our ushers, they will be standing at their doorway um, as you uh, exit the sanctuary today. May I ask you to stand as we transition into a time of worship this morning. Let's pray together. Father God, what a privilege to stand together as your people. We have come to encounter you. The Bible tells us that the Lord inhabits the praises of his people, which means you have come to reside in the place where we lift you up. So, in a way, that's our way of saying to you, when we praise you, when we lift you up, when we celebrate you, it's our way of saying, come live in this place, and more to the point, come live in our hearts. Change us, transform us, allow us to experience you this morning. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name, amen. My soul, mountain high, valley low, I'm gonna sing. 
God. He's been good. He's been faithful. He's our rock. And we remember that this morning because of his blood and his righteousness. Amen. Let's continue singing.
Father God, we thank you that you are Lord of all. In every situation, we know that when we come back to putting our trust in you, putting our hope in you, that's where we experience the goodness of God. That's where we see how you've always had us and held us in your hand, Lord. Every storm, every trial, every sorrow that we've had, you've had us. And you've held us there. Because we can believe in your promises that through Jesus' blood and his righteousness, that we're faultless to stand before you now. And we can rest in the goodness of God. Lord, never never let us forget. Never let us forget how good you've been to us and how good you will continue to be to us as we rest in you.
Yeah, you failed, but he hasn't. Yeah, you've been faithless, but he's been faithful. Yeah, you are unworthy, but he loves you anyhow. Yes, he wants to pour out his blessing, regardless of if you're deserving. That's the good God that we serve. I want you to know today that whomever AJ was speaking to, you are not here in church today as a demonstration of your personal piety. You are here today because God wants to encounter your heart and remind you who he is, that he loves you, that he cares for you, and he has a hope and a future for you this morning. That's why you're here. That's why you're here. Not to get into church, but to encounter the living God. Heavenly Father, I pray for each one of us that we would continue to encounter you today. I pray that we wouldn't be here because it's the right thing to do, or even, Lord, in some way to have our heart encouraged in our flesh. Lord, I pray that we would have an expectation this morning that you are speaking. Lord, you've spoken to someone's heart today. Lord, I pray that they would recognize your voice and do just as you've told us to do, to turn their heart, their mind, and their body toward you. Lord, we thank you that you're here this morning. Bless us now as we go into your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. You can be seated if you can. If you can't be seated, please move to the back so as not to block the person in back of you. So, Well, it's good to have you here this morning. We are going to be wrapping up our last sermon in our series, Responding Like Christ. We're, we have talked for four weeks about how to respond like Christ in these troubled times, these times where people seem so incredibly on edge, so incredibly uh, cynical, so incredibly angry, uh, so incredibly worried. And God wants us as his people to respond exactly as he would respond because we have something to do for him in this world. But the last thing we're going to look at today in week four of responding like Christ in these circumstances that find us that we don't find is to make sure that we have everything in its proper context. I'm going to argue to you today that the way to respond like Christ is to put everybody, and including ourselves, in the proper context. It's about 18 months ago. It was a cold winter night, and all of a sudden I saw something that made my heart race. A mouse was running across my dining room. Now, I am the resident mouse killer, always have been. I had roommates in college who had far bigger muscles than me that when we would catch a mouse, oh, skiff, get it out of the trap, but I'd have to go take care of the mouse. All right. At, at my home, I once caught a mouse in a Tupperware with my blazing speed. Yes, blazing speed. I'm just like Gimli. I'm very fast over short distances. And so this particular night was incredibly important to me because I now had cats. And I saw a mouse. And I thought, yes, well, I've got a smart cat and I've got a dumb cat. Let me grab the smart cat. So I grabbed Galaxy and I ran into the dining room with Galaxy like this. And the mouse had run behind the buffet, and I dropped the cat right where the mouse had just been and said, Galaxy, get it! And Galaxy turned and looked at me, meowed, and walked into the living room. And I thought, no, no, if I'm going to have cats pooping in my house, my cat is going to catch a mouse. So I ran back to the living room, I grabbed the cat again, and I ran back into the dining room with my cat going, Rrr. 
and I dropped it in front of the buffet again. Galaxy should have smelled that mouse, should have been ready for that mouse, should have pounced on that mouse. Galaxy meowed at me again and then went and hid. I hate cats. I, I wish I did. Because my cat was not living up to expectations. What was the problem? Was my cat a scaredy cat? Was my cat a bad cat? Was my cat even a dumb cat? No. My cat's a hunter. And I put the cat in the wrong context. It wasn't going to work because I was telling the cat, hunt that! As opposed to the cat getting a whiff and finding that mouse for itself. The mouse never did catch the cat. My cat, like reflexes, came into play once more. And I want to argue to you today that we can never respond like Christ until we place ourselves and the people around us in the proper context. And we're going to see Jesus do that in a pretty incredible story from Luke chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles this morning, turn in them to Luke chapter 7. If not, it'll be up on the screen. And we're going to be reading verse 36 and following. We're going to break this passage down into three different sections. So we're going to read a little bit, comment upon it, and then see if we can place people in the proper context. Are you in Luke chapter 7, verse 36? Let's rock and roll. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. So Jesus went into the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now... When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. Big mistake, but we'll find out about that in just a moment. Let's observe some things before we get to that point. Now, the beginning of this story is is pretty normal. Uh, a Pharisee asked Jesus to come to dinner. Now, if you've read the Gospels, you know that the Pharisees are often, you know, the opponents of Jesus. The Pharisees are the ones that are constantly trying to trip Jesus up, prove that he's not really from God. They're really not fans of his, uh, and they seem to be always antagonistic towards him. And you see a little bit of the antagonism right here in this story. But Jesus came to save everybody. He didn't just come to save the sinners and the tax collectors and, and, and others. He, he came for everyone. And so he goes to this Pharisee's house. He accepts the invitation, even though the Pharisees weren't very nice to him most of the time. Jesus goes into this house, and in the ancient world, especially the ancient Mediterranean, all the way around the Mediterranean Sea, there were sort of social niceties that were expected when you went to a dinner party. The idea was that you'd get the invitation, you'd go to the house, and the first thing that would happen is they would have water for you to wash your feet because everybody wore sandals, it was a dusty world, and, and the idea was that you can refresh yourself. Sometimes they'd even have a servant do that for you. You also were supposed to be greeted with a kiss. A couple of the ushers tried to greet me that way this morning. I said, you're reading the Bible too literally. I said, that's not my idea of a good time. But, but in the ancient world, all right, they, they, they greeted each other with a kiss on the cheek, I imagine. And then you'd also take some oil, maybe some perfumed oil, and you'd, you'd, you'd anoint the head of, the, of your guest. And, and so in the ancient world, oil was a sign of favor and hospitality and the Holy Spirit, all those good things. 
And so you'd do that as a sign of respect and a sign of honor. So you'd have all these things happen, and then you'd go in and, and, and you'd recline at the table. So in, in, this, in the Mediterranean, you didn't sit at a chair. You sort of sat with your left arm at the table, ate with your right, and your feet were out behind you. That doesn't seem very comfortable to me. I, I like chairs, but that's how they did it. All right, so that, that's what would happen. Now, that's not the end of the story because we have this strange appearance of this woman. How'd she get there? She obviously wasn't a guest at the table. Well, in Israel at that time, or, or, or Judea at that time, however you want to say it, what would happen is, is, is when high-ranking people, when, when, when rich people would get together and have a dinner party, it was expected that after the dinner they'd have a debate on the political stuff, on the cultural stuff, on the theological stuff, maybe some, maybe some multiple things, but they'd debate at the table. The, the host would have a topic ready to be talked about, and they'd have a debate. And this was a civic party. So folks from all over Nain, I believe they were in Nain, w- would have come and they would have been allowed after dinner to gather around the table, uh, peer in windows, look in doors, and enjoy the conversation, even though they weren't invited to the dinner party. Some of you were like, yeah, that, that's my life right now. The neighbor kids just peer in the windows and the doors and want to know what we're doing. I know, it happens, right? But, 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 but that's unwanted. This is expected, all right? It's expected that this would happen at, at this time in history, and that's how the woman ends up on the scene, But interestingly enough, Luke wants to cause us to have our eyes opened a little bit because he uses the word behold. Look at that in verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner shows up. That's like, catch this. Get this, guys. Listen, look at this. So he's wanting us to go, hey, this is an unexpected guest, right? Now, with the description that's given of this woman, we can assume that she was a member of the oldest profession. That's what we can assume from the text. A member of the oldest profession, somebody that would have been known in the community for that sin, is coming into this dinner party, and she would have entered the room like a communicable disease. All right? She would have been noticed, and it wouldn't have been happy noticing. It would have been like, oh, no. She has the virus, right? You would have just, no, stay away. I had a guy cough on me at Giant Eagle right when this all started. I was so bitter. Like, are you kidding me? We may be facing a global pandemic, and you're coughing on it? Anyhow, didn't get the virus, survived, got my ice cream, and got out of there. Long story short, she would have entered the room, and nobody would have wanted to even be around her, let alone be touched by her. That would have brought ultimate defilement in, in the Jewish world. And things then just get weird. So this woman's standing behind Jesus, and she's crying, and her tears are hitting his feet. I would not appreciate that. Second, she realizes his feet are wet. She kneels down, undoes her hair, which was a very risque thing to do at that time in history and in, 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 in Israel. That's tantamount to, to just anyhow. So she then begins to wipe his feet with her hair. Feet and hair. Hair and feet. Did I mention feet? This is weird. I've heard people like, this is a beautiful story. And I'm like, are you serious? If this were to happen in your living room, you'd be like, this is gross and stop it. Well, that's what's happening, right? So she is, she is wiping his, her feet with, with his feet with her hair, and then she's kissing his feet, right? Remember what type of woman this is, which, which makes you, you know, makes you, ew. you know, everybody there is like, ew, no. And then she takes her most valuable possession because in the ancient world, perfume was valuable. You know, like when things go bad in the United States, everybody's like, buy gold. Gold never loses its value. Well, in the ancient world, you had perfume, you had money. That's, that's money hanging around her neck in this alabaster jar. And she opens this thing and starts anointing, not his head. Once again, did I mention feet? Gross, and I'm sorry, 
Jesus came as a human in human likeness. Gross human God feet. All right? Going on here. Lord, forgive me. Did you know Jesus had a sense of humor? Anyhow, this is what's going on. And and Simon goes, well, we know he's not a prophet. (laughs) Because that woman is doing all this to him and he's not telling her to stop. And into this moment, Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he says, say it, teacher. Look at verse 41. Jesus said to Simon the Pharisee, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, catch that, turning toward the woman, but saying to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Boy, you expect Jesus to tell off the woman, hey, stop that, you're being weird. But he doesn't. He addresses Simon, and he calls attention to Simon's behavior. He, he says, Simon, did you see the way I came in today? You completely dishonored me. And I can't make enough of this. It would have been expected that he would have had water for his feet, oil for his head, a kiss for his cheek, and he gave him none of that. And I'm going to be stronger than I was in first service. This is a clear sign that Simon was dishonoring Jesus. Clearly dishonoring Jesus. So this act of this woman doing these things that look like dishonor, Jesus is saying, yeah, you know what? That's, that's right compared to how you treated me. Jesus has flipped this whole thing. He, he, he's flipped the script, if you will. He's made us think, no, no. When you look at Simon's behavior, you look at this woman's behavior, you're supposed to think the woman's behavior is odd and weird, but then you find out this backstory. Simon had dishonored Jesus, dishonored the human Jesus, but hugely dishonored the Son of God, Jesus, to, to have him come into the house, not as a welcome guest, but completely forgetting to honor him at all. So in essence, really getting down to it, Jesus is juxtaposing the sin of this woman, 500 denarii worth of sin, and Simon's sin, 50 denarii worth of sin, and saying, you know what, who's really going to love God more? The one who's certain they owe God a lot, or the one who's certain they don't owe God very much at all? You, Simon, view her as a sinner, and guess what? She sure is a sinner, But you view yourself as righteous, and you have not acted righteously. So what does that make you? Only one of you has acted righteously at this dinner party. She honored me, and you didn't. I didn't get to touch this on first service, but I want to touch it with you for just a minute. There is some weirdness here, or at least to the human eye, some weirdness. But if there was anybody that was worthy of such an effusive love, such an effusive humiliation... On their behalf, it was Jesus. Jesus is never like, no, don't praise me. God is never like, no, don't make that sacrifice, unless it's sinful. God God never looks at the effusive praise of him and worship of him, and he never looks at the humiliation of a human in that praise and worship and goes, no, I'm not worthy. Jesus was the only one in history worthy to have his feet anointed by a sinful person. 
we're not worthy of this, but he was. Jesus looks at Simon and says, listen, you are operating in a completely different paradigm than I'm operating in here. Completely different. But Simon was operating in the paradigm that most of us operate in. We don't judge our own sin. We merely judge ourselves in relation to worse sinners. We might admit now and again that we do wrong, that our motives are wrong, that our actions are wrong, but, but really we're convinced we're okay because there's worse sinners than us. We're at 50, but they're at 500. Jesus is bringing to the fore that only one person has acted righteously, and it's the sinful woman who is honoring the Son of God. Look at verse 47. Therefore, Simon, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Headline on the name chronicle the next morning, sinful woman reaches salvation at Pharisee's house. Not what you expect from a dinner party at the Pharisees that night, but that's what happens. Oh, and by the way, just a short theological point, Jesus forgave sins that night, which only God himself is allowed to do. Any good Jew knew that. So Jesus declared in their presence, not only is this woman's worship of me okay, her honor of me, her love of me, all right and acceptable, I am God, by the way, which makes it okay. Incredible story. Incredible story. Jesus forgives her sins, and her faith has saved her. What can we take away from this story when we think about responding like Jesus? And this is the first thing I want you to see today. Jesus places the woman and Simon within their proper context. They are both sinners in need of forgiveness. Jesus does not accept the righteousness of Simon nor does he accept the unrighteousness of the woman. He recognizes that they are both sinners in need of forgiveness. He puts them in the proper context. But the truth is, we don't often operate in that paradigm. We don't look as, at everybody as sinners. We like to excuse the sin of those people in our tribe. We like to excuse the sins of the people like us. We like to say, well, you know what, they're, they're more for us than they're against us, and they think like us, and they, they're, they're, they're pursuing our political or our cultural aims, so therefore it's okay. Their sin's all right. But those other people, not so much. Perhaps nothing would better illustrate this today than, than just the concept of what I was hearing on the radio as I came to our elders meeting yesterday. I guess the, the Sturgis bike rally is happening, right? Have you heard about this? All the bikers are going to go out, hang out at Sturgis, not socially distant, on their Harleys, right? And enjoy biking. And there will be a segment of the population that vilifies them for doing that. And there's a segment of the population that won't. But the, the, it's completely reversed because there will be a segment of the population that will vilify protesters but won't vilify the people at Sturgis. Oh, Pastor Matt, you're getting too close to politics. No, I'm getting too close to real life. We like to excuse the sin of the people in our camp while magnifying the sin of the people in the other. 
Well, who do you like, Pastor Matt? Do you like the protesters or the bikers? Just stop. I'm making a point here. But isn't this our human nature? The other Pharisees at the table probably didn't even think anything about what Simon did, but they're certain that woman doesn't belong there. Jesus places everybody in their proper context as sinners in need of forgiveness. Jesus doesn't excuse the sin of the woman. Jesus doesn't look at her and go, well, I don't know how she got into this place. It's probably not her fault. Yes, we, 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 should, we should be more compassionate. Jesus doesn't say that. He says, yep, she's a sinner. Yep, she didn't need to remain in this lifestyle. She should have gotten out and pursued something better. She didn't need to stay there. She should have trusted God. All of that's just implying Jesus going, yep, she's a sinner. But many of us would make excuses for the woman just because of how we feel culturally. Jesus doesn't. You're a sinner. Same thing with the woman caught in the act of adultery. Go and sin no more. Everybody's in the proper context, and Jesus doesn't excuse sin. Sin is sin. Simon is sinned by dishonoring the Lord. She is sinned by living in this lifestyle. There is no one righteous, not even one. Not one. Last weekend, my, my older brother and his family were in town, so AJ and I got together. We all brought our kids. Eleven kids came together. And we all brought bikes and trikes and scooters and taxi cabs and all of these things. And the kids were riding in the three-car driveway, and they were riding down the street. And somebody's always fighting over something right? Oh, it's my turn. No, they took the taxi cab. It's my turn to ride the taxi cab. They said it was my turn to ride the taxi cab. Then they took the taxi cab. It was just trying to figure that out all weekend. And we're all trying to do what's just, right? That poor kid, that poor little boy or girl hasn't been in the taxi cab yet. All right, you mean-spirited sinner, get out of the taxi cab so that the righteous kid can get in the taxi cab. And then the righteous kid would get in the taxi cab and start driving circles around the kid that had just gone out going, right? Because the kid who was put upon a second ago, oh, I didn't get a chance in the taxi cab, is now going, nah, 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 boo, boo. There is no one righteous, not even one. Not a one. If we're going to respond rightly to this world, if we're going to get out of this tribalism and just get into just being pure Christ-like Christians, we have got to make sure that we put people in the proper context and we've got to stop making excuses for people who think and look and act like us and stop excusing the sin of people that we like. But we also have to recognize that, yes, the people that we don't like are sinners too. Everybody's a sinner. Everybody. Everybody. Now, if that's where we ended the sermon, we could be great. We are Christians. Yes. Everybody's a sinner. We've been redeemed. Yes, let's start a political party. Take back the White House for Christ, right? No. There has to be a payoff, right? There has to be something that Jesus does in response to both of these people that makes it the correct response. Jesus, by forgiving the sins of the woman, okay, is telegraphing something. He's telegraphing something that has not yet happened but is going to happen on her behalf and is going to happen on Simon's behalf and is going to happen on my behalf and is going to happen on your behalf. He's telegraphing a moment when in response to the sins of the world, he is going to humble himself unto death on a cross for the sins of Simon and the sins of that woman.
so that he can forgive them. In response to the sin of humanity, Jesus is going to humiliate himself and be beaten and bruised and whipped and scourged and mocked and spit upon and pierced and crushed and suffocated for Simon and that woman so that their sins could be forgiven. For us to put people in their proper context and recognize that everybody is a sinner doesn't leave us with pride. It should leave us in humility, knowing that the Savior of the world, the sinless Son of God, went to that cross for us. And before he'd even gone to that cross, it breaks down this woman that she is weeping behind him, knowing that her salvation stems and flows from the man of whom she is kissing his feet. How do we respond like Jesus in this world? Not only do we not pick favorites and try to make other people's sins worse than our sins or worse than the sins of those who agree with us, but to respond like Christ is to put everybody in their proper context, but also put ourselves in the proper context. And here's the payoff of the story today, folks. There was one person that didn't put themselves in the proper context and one person that did. The person that didn't put themselves in the proper context was the one who was convinced he was righteous. But the one who did put themselves in the proper context was the one who was convinced they were a sinner. She humbled herself. She humiliated herself. She was willing to kneel at the feet of her Lord in order to see her sins forgiven. We talked for a week about valuing all people, looking past anything that would separate us from them for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of their salvation, for the sake of their redemption. But good luck with that if we remain haughty in our pride like Simon, convinced of our own righteousness, convinced of our own rightness, convinced of our own wisdom, convinced that we've got it figured out. And the scary thing about it is for the church today, we, we love to run around like we figured it out. And the ones I'm most concerned about are, are those of us who would feel as if, well, we've achieved some things in this life. We've, we've got some success. We've got some money. We've done some cool things. We've, we've put ourselves out there. We've, we've accomplished some things, and we have some money, and we have some wisdom, and we have some knowledge, and therefore we can rightly judge what's going on in the world. But the only way for us to rightly judge what is going on in the world is from a posture that is at the feet of our Lord. The only way for us to respond like Christ is not to say to ourselves, I have no problem valuing all people. I have no problem respecting all people. I'm not engaged in tribalism. I'm looking towards the redemption of all. But the only way that we can be dead certain of that being true is if our knees are bent before the Lord our Savior. And if we are fighting daily for our pride to die. Only one person left saved. Only one person left justified that day. And it was the woman. So yes, place people in their proper context. All people are sinners in need of grace. But place yourself in the proper context to him. Recognizing your sin 
and just how humble you should be because of it. Many of us are in the same place as Simon today. We're pretty sure we're cool with God. But to take a lesson from a sinful woman, perhaps we should be more sure that the only way to be cool with God is to make sure we're humbled before him. Say, Pastor Matt, my heart's humble today. I don't know what you're worried about. Let me ask you, when was the last time you, O great man or O great woman, got on your knees before the Lord in prayer? Like, physically took the posture of kneeling to say, God, you're the boss and I'm not. When was the last time, O wise man, O wise woman, that your own sin brought you to tears that would wet the feet of the Lord? Or perhaps just cause you godly remorse to the point where you just went, oh, thank you for your goodness, God. I'm not worthy of it. When was the last time a humility like this touched your heart? That's a litmus test. Because you can try to be wise and you can try to find the center way. You can try to pick your battles wisely. You can try to say the right thing to the right person. You can attempt to be a salvific force in the lives of others. But if you're not doing so from a spirit of humility at the feet of the Lord, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss it. You're going to miss it best way to read the Gospels, oh people of God, is to see ourselves as the Pharisees in need of a Savior who deals gently with the prideful human heart. Perhaps he's looking at you today saying, Matthew, I have something to say to you.